Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by SAIT's School for Advanced Digital Technology, an innovation hub disguised as a post-secondary institution where creators, educators, and learners like you are coming together to transform tomorrow. Boost your skills with tech boot camps and carve out a new career path through dynamic, future-forward courses. The world of work is evolving. Future-proof yourself with SAIT's School for Advanced Digital Technology. This episode is hosted by Adam Ludgate. Adam is a technical leader who is involved in the startup tech community and is enticed by new and innovative ways of solving problems with technology. He has worked previously with the likes of IBM Canada, AOL UK, tech startups in London's Silicon Roundabout, as well as in a variety of oil and gas software firms in various software development and leadership capacities. And in this episode, Adam has another conversation with Randy Thompson. Take it away, Adam. Thanks, Al. Today on the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, I'm having a conversation with Randy Thompson now. Randy, you were on the podcast with me uh, about 18 months ago, uh, and this is a bit of a check-in for those of the listeners who don't know Randy. Uh, he's the chairman and CEO of Valhalla Private Capital, managing partner at Old Kent Road Financial, and a partner at Peterborough United FC out of the UK. Uh, so, Randy, a lot has changed since we last um, had a conversation. Obviously, we've been in in the middle of a pandemic and heading out the door. Uh, hopefully, looking like that's that's happening. And uh, wanted to you know check in. So, how how are things in in your world these days? That's great. And you know, Adam, thanks for having me back. It's like it is kind of funny as you and I are talking. We're a month away from. Uh, from the premier in our province saying that we're all going to go to the stampede with no masks on. So it'll be interesting for anybody listening to this in six or seven months to say, oh, that was never going to happen, or I can't believe that happened, or, you know, just putting a timestamp on on yours and I conversation. But, you know, COVID in the rearview mirror would be, I think it'll be something. I, I do think it's obviously going to impact all of us for a couple more years. And, you know, as we as you and I start talking today, I think we're going to really get dive into how COVID is going to affect public policy, how much money is sitting on the sidelines, how it's affecting valuations and and quite frankly, how it's affecting the number of people that have actually sat down and done their startup during this time period. So, as you said, uh, man, there's a, there is so much that is going on and so much that's changed. And surprisingly, this goes beyond people's personal mental health and and how difficult that's been for a year. But in the, in the business world, I think especially tech is unfortunately for the tourism sector, while they've suffered and, and taken, taken a posterior kicking, tech has actually benefited uh, from, from clarity and focus, which I see a lot of companies bringing that all of a sudden. They're realizing their timelines are, are a lot shorter on how, how they use capital and how they get to product market fit a lot quicker. Yeah. So from your chair, you know, sitting in the running the Valhalla group um, and, and being very much involved in the angel investment scene in Canada, Western Canada, what, what are the impacts of COVID you've seen? Have you seen I, I, I presume that there's been a bit of a decrease in deal flow at, at some point along the way, and, and maybe it returned back. I, I know tech is booming. Um, so 
where what does it look like from your chair? You know, interestingly, in our fund, in in our venture debt fund, that's OKR Financial. Uh, the first thing uh, that happened is March 2020 hits. Uh, my partner and I sit down, and and we had interesting contrarian views on what we should do. You know, anybody who, who knows me on this podcast is not going to be shocked to say here that uh, Randy Thompson said. Let's go. Like there's going to be a ton of people trying to get bridge capital, venture debt, uh, just figuring out their cash positions and really hunkering down for for a pandemic. You know, we should be in this in the marketplace with available capital. My partner and most people will, who don't know, uh, J- Dr. Jason Neal, he's a EY Entrepreneur of the Year and uh, two MBAs. And, he, and if you and if that wasn't bad enough, one's from Columbia and one's from London Business School. His was hunker down, put a huge cash reserve, and wait this thing out to see how it's going to go. And interestingly, from an investor perspective on what to do with cash, that's different than the question you asked me, which is we must have seen an impact in deal flow. The reality is, while we were trying to decide what to do with our investing strategy, deal flow kept coming in unabated. So interesting trend across startups and VC. We see that the data is is there. It's not just uh, me making an observation. But my personal experience with deal flow in in both our angel group, in the venture debt fund, and and our equity funds was that uh, it just came in unabated. It was no change. And all the data shows that there was no change in that, which is really, I don't know if it's strange, uh, I, but I guess when you're a startup, you need cash when you need cash. doesn't matter whether there's a pandemic going on or not. If you, if you hit the next round, you've got to go hit the street, I guess. Yeah. And it, it, as, as I think it's everyone in the, in the tech community is aware, the pandemic has spurred on a huge explosion in new innovation. And the race, for, for, for one example, the race for the... Um, online networking platforms was just bonkers, right? And, and I, you know, we have all, I think, at this point, probably experimented with a few different ones and been invited to have conversations on a variety of these platforms. In the early days, man, some of these were buggy because they were just rushing these things out the door to try and get, you know, something in place. And you know, obviously, Zoom, is, Zoom has been a, the same as Google, say, I'm going to Google it, I'm going to Zoom it, right? And but some of these other platforms, and they've become more mature now. So it's been really interesting to watch that kind of you know, all these spinoffs and offshoots of, of pieces of technology that maybe were were coming, but you know, really accelerated and happened quickly. Well, like just a personal experience in that inside of Valhalla, I'll give a shameless plug out to two of my partners, uh, uh, Danny Way and, and Luke Kruger. They both uh, left kind of the Valhalla family uh, because they had a really hot startup called I See What You See in the AR VR customer service space. And, you know, that went so quick that we be, I don't even know that how many Val, I think Valhalla got like 150 K or 200 K of a, of a $2 million round. And now they're in the Google accelerator and they're looking at finishing a series a that that's a hell of a ride in 12 months. And again, they were in that virtual uh, customer support space, just fantastic timing on their part. But I do honestly believe it wasn't just a platform. It was also that some great customers going into that pandemic that were good use cases for others to say, okay, it's safe to use these technologies. And I think one of the things that's been interesting, Adam, is that the number of people that have almost been thrown off a cliff, which is, hey, you know, I didn't feel the need to use these things. We've got a Latin American fund. And one of our companies there was talking about how they were doing, um, they would do drive up 
auto repair at people's homes. And that was okay. It was going okay. But what they did is when COVID hit, they, they actually went into a scheduling app that actually had the tow truck come and pick up your car, deliver it to the garage. The garage would do the uh, repairs and drive it back. And, and the magic wasn't anything in there's any tech or, or the auto repair. The, the magic was that people in Colombia were forced to actually start using mobile apps. So he said there's been a real uh, mobile app revolution. And in North America, we think, well, what's that all about? Well, if you're paying on, you know, metered or per minute uh, or, or, you know, per kilobit, you know, you, d- you don't have a tendency to use a ton of apps. But as, as uh, COVID hit, basically there was a, a user behavior change uh, and it became transformational for businesses. And I hear this story over and over and over through the last year and a half. Yeah, it's been, it's been super interesting to watch and we'll see what sticks for the long haul and what maybe dies off. And I think there'll be many, many years to come to do a postmortem on what happens here. As we were talking about before we got on to the recording, um, one of the things that prompted me to reach out to you to, to have an update conversation was the um, article that came out earlier this year around why the Canadian tech scene doesn't work. And that was, uh, I believe it was penned by a gentleman named Alex Danko. And he's a, he's a Shopify employee based in, in Toronto, I think. So he wrote quite a long blog post around this, and we'll make sure that, that the article is in the show notes. And then you wrote a, uh, a response or a parallel commentary into what Alex said, because I think it merited it merited a little bit of input, and I was glad to see that you did that. And not to say that you know Alex didn't have any uh, any solid points or anything like that, but it merits some some big discussion. I think I wanted to to dive into that conversation with you. So really, the comment at a high level was that you know Canadian tech doesn't work. Um, we have a lot of the bad and wrong ingredients. We're not going. We're never going to be the valley. Um, you know, we don't, our investors and our entrepreneurs don't work in the right way together. We have a bad reward systems and incentives. And, and so, you know, curious to, to, you know, obviously your thoughts are all there on paper, but, you know, maybe we can dive into a little bit as to what you see, uh, what you see and things again, things have changed in even in the last few months. And actually I feel really confident about that uh, I, I'm not even going to call it a rebuttal because I did say Alex made some great points and I, I'm sincere about that. But what it, what interesting is he he probably hit you know my thesis or my grand thesis and it probably poked me a little bit a, into a response. And I and I think I've been spending a lot of time thinking that is investors should have a thesis when they go into investing. They should have a thesis or or what I'll call a view of the world. And, and and so it's interesting, Adam, because one of the things is we as we opened with how has COVID changed in things in a year and a half. One of the things I spent a lot of time on was my thesis and, and what my view of the world is. What what was the world going to look like in a post COVID environment? So so where was I going to push my investing strategy or or my startup thoughts or my startup principles? And that was super interesting because. Nothing changed. Uh, Like, I really firmly believe that what's already entrenched is actually just going to get worse. So I was already kind of feeling that the whole movement to globalization was already kind of, I wouldn't say in tatters. That's that's overdramatic. That'll get me on the front page of the National Post. But but the reality is globalization was in trouble. We saw governments like the Trump government. We saw, you know, we saw the UK leaving the EU. Like there there was a, a move away from global free trade to entrenchment to look after our own economy. And the other thing that was happening was that 
we used to have this rule that Silicon Valley, like if you weren't within a hundred miles of the VC, he wouldn't invest, he or she wouldn't invest in you. So we have this trend towards looking after our own economies while interestingly investors are going, Oh shit, I'm not seeing enough good deal flow where I live. So investing has become more global while the running of companies, in my opinion, is actually got to be more localized. You've got to show you can make it in Calgary, Alberta, before you sell to Western Canada, before you sell to Canada, before you, go, before you go international. That's sort of SaaS even. Like, you've got to show local support, and then all of a sudden, hopefully, you get, you know, just killer killer uh, growth over, you know, month over month with no churn. But it still has to have a local thesis. Yeah, just just to go off on a bit of a tangent on this one, I have heard as well that and maybe you can confirm this that you know the appetite for investors to make investment into tech startups where they have never actually met the founders in person is now you know completely different. They've been forced into that. Right, where back in the day you must meet them, you must get to know them. I'm giving you this money; it's a partnership, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's like, okay, let's hop on Zoom. Looks good to me. Let's make it. Let's make it happen. Right? I, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I, I have heard there's a trend in this direction. I won't lose the train of thought. So. For those scoring at home, remember we were talking about the uh, Danko thing and my view of the world, but our Adam is brought up as super important. That trend is actually coming from a different place. So prior to the uh, pandemic, we already had too much cash. We're calling it the overhang. So the amount of cash that was in institutional pockets, in angel investors, in VCs, we see this trend where there's so much cash sitting on the sidelines. And I hate to say this, entrepreneurs, I've said this on my la- on the last podcast, I've said it before, if you can't raise money right now, it's actually on you. So when we come back to the Danko article, I'll put that one back in. But there's so much cash on the sidelines. And prior to the pandemic, you had people like SoftBank pretty much trying to wreck the industry, right? If you have a look at the trends in 18 and 19, look at CB Insights. What was happening is large pools of cash we're going into fewer deals, VC deals. So the VC numbers would say, oh, the amount of VC investing is going up. But the interesting part was it was going into less companies. And that was because so much money was chasing the great deals. And if you found a great deal, people were basically within 48 hours, write the check. Otherwise, you're going to get left in the sidelines. And then entrepreneurs would come back and go, oh, I got permission from my board to, quote, quote, oversubscribe, which is code for shit. People are trying to throw us checks. We should take the money. That trend is actually carried through COVID. For all of you at home trying to buy a house, part of it is the trend is you all have more money because you didn't put it on your credit cards. Your credit card debt went down, your credit rating's gone up, and what's the first thing you're trying to do? It's trying to buy a house, which has overheated the housing market. That is actually what's happening in the investment market. So, Adam, you're bang on. It's not that people aren't doing deals because they didn't do the due diligence or whatever. They're basically seeing the really hot deals are being just covered quickly. That makes it a buyer's market for entrepreneurs. You guys are getting away with murder right now on valuation and your use of safe notes. Like because you're able to push the investors around, if you're a great deal, then you're going to be oversubscribed. Your valuation's going up and you can use something shitty like a safe note and, and look after yourself, not the investors. So if you can't raise money like that in this environment, now we're back on the Adam Banco thing. 
you have just actually defined who you are. And my article was, listen, there's two types of deals in the world. There's the Silicon Valley, Boston, New York deal, and you're super hot. Everybody's trying to get in. You're solving a global thing, and everybody thinks their exit's going to be well north of $100 million. But for the rest of you, it's time to just own up that you're a really nice, cute Canadian tech deal. And a nice, cute Canadian tech deal, the average exit price is $25 million. You are not a Silicon Valley deal. So the problem I had wasn't what Alex was saying. It was pro- My problem was the disconnect when you're a Canadian tech deal trying to act like a Valley deal, and then you complain you can't raise money. Well, the, the reality is you can't raise money because you're not, and I used Gary Camp in mine as an example, you're not stumble upon. You're not Benevity. You're not Jobber. You're not Shopify. You're not Slack. But... I've done a ton of deals in Canada, and I was in a deal called Quick Mobile, which was a $35 million exit. You know, I did a deal in a company with the exit. I can, I'm not going to – I just was thinking if I can use the name or not. It was a $16 million exit, and I did eight times my money on it. So as an investor, both deals are super exciting to me, but I'm going to use a completely different paradigm to how I invest Compared to, oh, shit, I better get in on this deal with Andres and Horowitz, and I've got 48 hours to write the check, and I haven't even seen the term sheet. Yeah, interesting. And, and so that was going to lead, lead me nicely into the next thing I want to talk to you about on this is that Alex you know, made a number of comments about angels and good angels and bad angels. And you know, it's seldom that you actually see a blog post like this make such a splash. And I, you know, I talked to a number of people who have read this and so I, I'm curious about you know, what the reaction would be from communities like Valhalla and people who are part of NACO and re- people who really actually care about Canadian tech and Canadian investment. You know, what, what do they think when they, they say, oh, he's got a point, I'm doing it wrong, or he's wrong, I, I do care about the long-term, you know, infinite success of my country and, or you know, companies in my country. You know, what, what, what did you see in, in terms of reaction, I guess, in your reaction? Yeah, and, uh, you know what? That was, that was good, by the way. That was good interview tactic because that actually is the next paradigm. So we spend so much time talking about entrepreneurs and whether they're Valley deals or, or Canadian deals, right? And by the way, part of my article is I, I've spent time in 30 countries. It's not a brag. That's to say, you know, we've actually worked with ecosystems at Valhalla in 30 countries. And you know what? They're all the same as Canada. That's the that's the mind-blowing part is that everybody has this hand-wringing angst about we've got to be the next valley. We've got to be the next valley. And I'm going, no, it's 97% of the startup ecosystems have the same problems. So why don't we start writing more about the 97%? Why are we so busy reading Cal Kenis's book about how we want to be those guys? It, it, it's like it is. It's like going back to high school. And I wasn't a cool high school kid. You know, I didn't get invited to the bar, guy's party next door. And I'd spend ha- my hand wringing time going, oh, I didn't go to the cool kids party. But you know what? I'd go out to my friend's place. We had a party with 35 people, be home at 3.30. And if I was being honest, I'd rather hang out and get loaded with those guys than go hang out with the cool kids. But there was this angst of like, oh, my goodness, Adam's laughing for everybody because he, he totally knows what I'm talking about. And so do all of you have gone through this high school thing. But we've got so much of this high school attitude in tech investing and in startups. We measure our success by, oh, my round is so big. Oh, like, look who's in. Like, we, we don't measure by exit success. 
we don't measure by we should honor people who raise you know just build a company with cash flow and do do the right things right but but we don't do that we want to be part of the cool kids and that's the problem with 97 percent of the world and that was danko's article the, the angst but the reason it got so much is there's so much angst about not being invited to the cool kids party i'm not avoiding your question but i'm just saying in the investor space we have the same problem you have as an as an entrepreneur I've long told the story about, you know, being close to one of the first uh, investors and skip the dishes. Andrew Chow came to us when they were at a 450 K valuation. Think about that. Think of how early that was. By the time Andrew and his partners had actually started to raise, uh, they went to a formal angel group in Winnipeg, us in here in Alberta. By the time the story started to leak out, I'd gotten a call from a New York VC Rubicon Ventures, who was a friend of mine, and he's going, how come you didn't tell me about Skip? And I'm going, how the hell did you find out about Skip? They're still in the friends and family round. Oh, because the guys at Real had told me. So this story got out like wildfire. And by the time we're done, four of the cool investors in Canada, um, guys from Shopify, guys from Wattpad, Maddie Golden, basically came in with a valuation, which was close to, I think it was $12 million. They put a check for 250k each, and they told us, "Hey, we don't know you guys at Valhalla." So I said, "Well, can we take one of those 250ks?" We had the money, and they said, "No, we just don't know you." So even in the Canadian ecosystem, there's the cool kids and there's the not cool kids, and, and whether we like it or not, at Valhalla, when you run a formal angel group, I had to decide what my passion was, and I decided early on it was about getting more investors into the ecosystem. And when you just bring all comers, when you're just bringing, you know, oil and gas people or real estate people or people with a $15,000 check, my worldview was we need more angel investors. And then Adam becomes right because formal angel groups have a colleague of people writing 15 to 100,000 checks. You don't know when they join the group if they're bozos or if they're legit. You know, if you get a brand, like I feel we have a brand, we have a, we have four family offices that have joined Valhalla and a, and a couple of VCs, and we're proud of that. But in the early days, you know, when you're Christopher Columbus and you land on the island, you'll talk to anybody who talks to you. And then Adam is right. If you can get a check from one of the cool kids, and by the way, we could list them. You know, I, I hope I'm on that list by myself, but me inside of my own organization I'm helping rookie angels come to terms with things. And rookie angels in Canada are not seeing skip the dishes. And they're not seeing the example I used, stumble upon. They're not seeing the A-plus deal flow because they're not A-plus cool kids. But is that, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a Canadian problem. Would rookie angels in Texas have the same access? I, I very much doubt it. You got it. I mean, I, we did our base camp program and we did it in San Diego and New Orleans. I would have thought San Diego was pretty close to having the cool kids group, right? No, this this angst we have on both the deal flow side and the investor side is actually it's it's a real thing. There is a there is a serious division between the Silicon Valley hot hot deals, the people that see them first and pick them off, and then there's a di- there's a division between the next layer, which is you're a great Canadian company with great Canadian investors. But your exit's going to be twenty-five to thirty-five million. Yeah, and so just to put this this 
issue around into the into the window view of an entrepreneur you know what are the incentives of the entrepreneur here right like i can get access to capital but maybe i want the cool kids because the cool kids have a bigger network is that true i don't know 100% so you're going to go try to you know i always joke if you land in calgary alberta and you don't know the ecosystem at all and you say to somebody on the street name name the five richest people in calgary that might do a deal you could do that in any any ecosystem over 50,000 you know, for those of you who are in Alberta in the rainforest space, you know, you go into Red Deer and Lethbridge and Medicine Hat. There's there's local mafias where five or six family offices have all the cash and everybody knows who they are. And they're literally the first people you're going to take a deal to. And, and if we made a list, you know, we have the narwhal list for entrepreneurs. If we were to say who are the top 50 angel investors in Canada? then every single entrepreneur is going to try to go to those 50 and say, I deserve your time because I'm a Valley deal. And then what's going to happen is you're going to find it really quick. You are or you're not. You're going to get an overvalued valuation at a safe note, all your terms, and, and we're all fighting to get into your deal. That Welcome to the Valley deal. But now you get tossed out of those 50. Does that mean you should quit? You should go home to mommy and cry and say, I'm, I suck as an entrepreneur? No. Congratulations, you're now part of the 97%. Now, you're going to basically be with a bunch of investors trying to figure it out, with a bunch of entrepreneurs trying to figure it out, and hopefully, on the entrepreneur side, you've got a good advisor that's helping you sort out product market fit, and on the other side, hopefully, there's a good lead investor, and that's what we think formal angel groups and Valhalla and other groups in the you know in the, in the country that are passionate about more people getting involved in angel investing. The number of times I get asked personally to sort of say, "Hey, can can you look after this?" Right? I can't anymore. My, my like I am I am to my detriment. I'm one of the slowest people to actually get a sub-agreement signed in a check, and it's just my time management. And, of course, with OKR, like OKR, is a, we, we started as a $20 million fund, just to tell you how much cash was on the street in the pandemic. We're at $120 million, and, and like, that's a 6x growth in our fund. So I'm managing, yeah. So I've got lots of my own birds to, to manage. So, so finding a lead investor to go through while you're a B plus deal is super important. So both sides of the equation are difficult. Interesting. Yeah. And so you've touched on valuations a couple uh, times now, and that was commented as well in the discussion. And one of the things that, again, differentiator here, and this might just fall back to the same point around the 97%, 3%. But, you know, it seems that the valuations just kind of go wild and and a lot of these valley deals and people say well how can you justify that valuation it's almost like we're we're, we're doing valuations and that 97 percent group as you call it the you know it's like a completely different criteria for how you do a valuation and you know part of me wonders and is there some magic in that you know excess valuation and that these entrepreneurs are just given everything like well you know you basically have all the horsepower you need to make this idea work and we don't care that it's not worth this much money right now. We're going to throw everything at you. I mean, is that something that the 97% is missing? Is And, and I, I, that, I don't necessarily know that that's a sustainable approach either, right? Because some percentage of these startups are going to fail, and then you're going to lose your angels. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing to balance, I guess. But I'm just curious about that valuation subject. And There's about three good things in there, Adam. See, no, Alex. Uh, the other guy was getting called Adam. Adam, at least you got your name uh, pronounced properly. 
I, <laughs> there, there are three things in there you said. When you're getting in a Valley deal, I already said SoftBank is, an, is a great example. Of just, uh, you know, I'm going to say it fucking everything up. They just over, they put way too much money into WeWork, way too much money into Uber, over, didn't care about valuation. It was get the excess cash we have into the hottest deals we know. And that behavior is carried on. And that's, again, part of the Valley thing. But if your exit looks like it's going to be north of 100 million, whether the value is 5 million or 8 million in a pre-seed round, who cares? Like it's it's a rounding error in the in the end of the day exit. Let's go through this on the B plus side. If you come in with an 8 million US, so I'm going to be kind and say the northern peso is, you know, had a good day. So let's call it 11 million Canadian. But I've already told you the exit price you see, the difference is if I'm getting into a deal where I've got FOMO and, and, and that's a different conversation, like should investors just follow their FOMO? Um, you know, lemmings get led to, you know, sheep get led to slaughter and all those kind of things, right? That's a different issue. If I'm chasing the unicorn exit, I'm not worried about valuations. Alex is right about that. But if I'm doing a Canadian deal, if I don't worry about that valuation, I'm going to get stuck with a 2.2 times my money exit in seven and a half years if, to your point, this company's alive. So, of course, Canadian angels have to fight on valuation. They have to decide whether a convertible note that actually, and I'm serious about this, that there's so much cash that, you know, this is blowing entrepreneurs' minds. Convertible notes used to come with interest rates. And there's interest, there's convertible no time in, you pay an interest rate. And I do that for two reasons. First off, I don't believe your valuation. Secondly, I'm not convinced I'm not going to get screwed by an institutional investor in the next round. So if you understand exit waterfalls at all, and Adam, maybe we put up a chart on how an exit waterfall works. But people with debt get paid before people with equity. So if you have a convertible note, which is debt, I actually have the option, do I take my money off the table at the debt level or do I convert and go to equity because, you know, somebody hasn't taken me on a 3x liquidation preference? That's another term we don't have time to talk about. But I literally was in a deal where BDC, the freaking government, had a had a 2 to 3x liquidation preference and wiped out the angels on a deal. That's the government of Canada stuck it to me. By the way, I love BDC. That was, you know, I'm being, I'm being half funny about it because, you know, I've got some great friends there and they do great work. So, you know, my BDC friends, don't don't bomb me on LinkedIn tomorrow. Uh, you do great work. It could have been any VC. Because the trick, Adam, is we all got to figure out how to get enough exit out of those Canadian deals. So Alex is right. Of course, we're going to take longer on due diligence. Of course, we're going to get hung up on deal structuring. Of course, I'm wondering what's the right amount of cash I should put into a deal. I'm not actually convinced it's going to be a winner. And the last point on your three points is this. What I think people don't realize is I think in Canada, again, the difference between that A plus and B plus, at A plus, it's a binary outcome. You're, you're a unicorn or you're dead. And we all know you're going in for black 17 and you're putting your cash down and woohoo, let her ride. In Canada, it's actually nobody ever dies. So in my own portfolio, if I look at it, I'm, I'm almost 100 investments now over the last 15 years. I think I, I still don't think I've hit double digits on companies that have died. I haven't. I think I'm just over double digits on exits. And I have about 80 zombies. 
So Canadian companies don't die and they don't grow. They just sit in the middle, either losing 200,000 a year or making 200,000 a year, which is enough to hire 17 employees and the, the uh, CEO to get a nice lease on an Audi, but there's not enough scratch to get anything back to the angels. That's actually the, that is actually the curse of the Canadian angel. Yeah, I, I you know again. I going back to the article here. I really wonder if this is a Canadian problem again. Like we talk about Valley, Boston, New York. Like again, like this is there's companies in, that fail everywhere. There's startups that fail everywhere that were that just you know a zombie along to use your term, right? Like that. It's not. I, I don't know. I'm not necessarily convinced that you know Canadian Canadian tech is necessarily a failure in that front. So I agree with you, I, and that's. You know, to just say something positive in case everybody thinks I'm the, you know, I've been in this industry too long. It's time to put me out to pasture. But I, I've always said this every single company is fundable. I, and, and that's what angel investing is about. Every single company is fundable. It's on you as an entrepreneur, but on me as an angel to actually pick a deal structure that works for both of us. And that's why, you know, again, in Valhalla, what we did is we created a venture debt tool. You know, through OKR, we encourage using convertible notes so that you don't get fornicated on the on the exit waterfall. And we encourage you to, to put, you know, a ton of cash in Black 17 and let it ride. So we're just trying to use all the right tools in this startup space because we want to do this. We, we want to participate. In, and we I'd rather do deals in the place I live than than go do them in, in San Francisco. But I, I hate to say it, I can make more money in San Francisco. Well, if we all keep working, maybe maybe things will change at least somewhat. But, you know, it's, it's a tough challenge even we're not the only jurisdiction in the world that are trying to solve this problem. So, and so just to go next to the next point on, on the discussion here was around um, – you know, government funding, the Canadian Shred program, maybe not having the outcomes and effects that we'd like them to have. And this is, you know, particularly relevant to you because you're running the OKR fund, which I know leverages the Shred program. What's your take on this, you know, this idea that Shred puts puts entrepreneurs in a position where they're really focused on reporting and spending their time meeting, you know, meeting goals that they have outlined for the government or maybe taking outside shred into a wider thing, you know, whatever name your government program where you've been accepted and you've received a grant because you meet some criteria, but you need to show them that you've met that criteria and, and having the entrepreneur in the position where they need to report around that criteria and meet that criteria removes their creativity and, and stifles creativity and growth. So I don't know if that's true. Uh, it's an opinion of someone that I'm, I'm curious to know. You know, we can talk about the government funding quite a bit where you sit on all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me say, first off, Alex was bang on about that comment. And uh, so you are absolutely right. You're Adam, you're supposed to go, What? You actually agree that Shred sucks, even though you have a fund. How could you say such a thing? Well, add that to the fact that I was, uh, you know, I started in in public policy. I started as a chief of staff to the tech minister. So I love this space. I love economic development, and I love what we do. So, again, interestingly, you actually can do the same split we just talked about in the last section with this. If your company has product market fit – and you are freaking going to the moon. I, I've actually run two companies now that were were basically rocket. I know I call them tigers by the tail. You don't sleep. You're in the office for 20 hours a day. You're actually super scared of what you missed. Like you, your company owns your soul. 
you're growing so fast. You know, I've seen I've seen on the investor side where companies were so in the product market fit, you close a funding round, and I know somebody drove three hours to give the company a hundred thousand dollar check and said, I knew if I didn't show up and give you this check, you know, that wouldn't happen. Again, OKR, I hate to say it, we've got product market fit. I'll come into the office and somebody will say, do you know this person? Because they forgot to sign the check and it's 100000 and they just said, we've heard your fund's great, we want in. Like product market fit is, is a phenomenal thing and it drives you. You don't spend time thinking about it. You don't start you know, wringing your hands on Facebook ads going, hey, guys, hope you've heard of us, but, uh, you know, can you come use our shit? No, product market fit drives you so, like, you're not in control. Where I'm going with that, if you have a Canadian company that has that, you don't have time to go for a grant. And that makes you, again, what kind of company? Just testing those at home. That's a Valley company. In fact, if you get that type of product market fit, you're not even going to have time to actually come see me in the formal angel network because it's a it's a six week application process and probably three weeks to get a check after that. No, you're going to pull a Garrett camp. You're going to get on the plane from Toronto or Calgary or Vancouver. You're going to fly down to the valley and you're going to see a Techstars, Y Combinator, 500 startups or C100. Somebody's just going to introduce you to someone who goes, hell of an idea. Here's 100. That's product market fit. But who did we say doesn't fit that? Oh, 97%. And you know what? The one thing when I was entrepreneur in residence, I used to tell companies, the only time in your life as a startup, you're going to have time to to hang out, you know, lie in a blanket and read books, you know, test theories, think about your view of the world. Uh, come back to that is super important. Like, what's your view of the world on everything? The only time you get to think about these things is in the startup phase. Take your time. Don't be in a rush because once you hit it, you know, you, you, you lose your soul, you lose your time, you lose your friends, uh, your company will own you and you have to, you have to go ride the tiger by the tail. That's what shreds about. That's what the government grants are about is giving Canadians time to think about innovation, to think about where innovation fits in a commercial world, to test some product market fit on some customers to you know go to a trade show and see if if their thir- their view of the world is right again i'm a huge fan for those 97% but if you're a real you know get to alex if you're a real tech company you don't have time for that bullshit but take your time getting there and so i think canada finland all the different places that do innovation grants it's a brilliant brilliant way to go okay cool yeah and and i, I mean interesting uh, talking point on this as well, which I which I wanted to ask was around um, antibiotics. You know, they have taken on a significant amount of government funding, uh, and you know, as as many people well know the story. I had Scott on the on the podcast a couple months back, and you know, there was a, a bids from a couple U.S. states to try and get them to come down there, and, and we managed to keep them here, thankfully. And I think you know, if it's not all in part due to these government grants, it's very much large in part due to those things. And they, they are a bit of an outsider in terms of the, of the conversation we're just having now, right? Because they've really, I'm glad you brought it up. Cause I mean, let's, let's go, let's go hit me right close to home. Atabotics we passed on, but when you think about it, Atabotics, I saw Atabotics really early on and Scott. And at that time, Jacques uh, Laplante was helping him out with it. Came into Valhalla, had a ton of signups, but everything we were worried about was, oh, my gosh, like 
they need so much capital. Holy cow, if we give them 500 grand right now, you know, what happens when they run out of cash, right? And, and so we took a pass on it. So then back to Alex's comment, is Alex going to say that our group was deadbeats with no investors? Or did we lack courage? Or did we see a deal at the wrong time? I'm going to say probably a combination of all of the above. Probably some of the people who wanted to write a check had no history with it and were scared. Some of the people legitimately said, this is way too early. And other people went, yeah, I might as well wait. So then he goes and gets government funding and, quite frankly, gets in what I've called the Alberta Mafia. So, you know, you've got the city of Calgary. You've got uh, – I won't name it. I don't want to get into that, and I don't want to be called out on that crap. But I think, I think if I hit a nerve, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, interestingly, you get the city coming in with millions of dollars plus what they've got from other places – how would you bring that deal back to Valhalla now? Because then you've got all the all the hard lifting, the heavy lifting's been done by our government, and that's a that's a really that's a really fascinating deal now, isn't it? And the number of people who are hired and and what they're doing is phenomenal. Well, to be fair to Valhalla in this one as well, I think that hardware companies like Atabotics are the capital intensity is just bananas, right? Like. We could we can take this entire conversation around investment and shred and angels and just say we're talking about tech, we're talking about software, we're not talking about hardware because hardware is it's a different game, right? Like I'm going through this right now in a startup of my own, and it's a big challenge. The capital, there's no there's no getting around it. You got capital, you got to burn to get that hardware going. So you know, be fair to Valhalla, I think that it could have been a combination of things you mentioned, but also it's just, I mean, it's it's a tough one. So. Yeah. And I, I'll say this too, uh, Adam, that, you know, I, I, one of my core investments, I came out of, tel- you know, internet and I got in a telecom investment in Calgary called Genesis Technical Systems. And what they're doing is phenomenal. They actually have got, basically they can do fiber speeds over copper. And I got in that. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I got in that deal in 2008. We've raised $11 million, $12 million, and $17 million nickels at a time over 14 years. And it has been a hard, hard, hard road. And it wasn't just building the hardware. It's now you go do f- lab testing and field testing inside the telecoms. Well, we're finally seeing the end of the tunnel. And it looks like this thing could be worth billions of dollars. But now go back to investors that have been carrying the hardware load for 14 years. And, no, you know, we, there it is. It's right there. You know, you can see the, oh, the angel and the lights and, and nobody wants to touch it because, yeah, 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 you told us this two years ago. Yeah, 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 you told us this four years ago. It's true. Like, hardware's hard. No, it's, 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 it's interesting because I, I think it is relevant to the conversation because hardware still, you know, IoT is growing significantly and it's becoming more and more relevant so i I think it's worth worth touching on but just to go back to the government funding stuff let's put shred aside and just talk about government grants in general um do you feel that they're the way they come at at you know federal provincial levels i guess even even municipal levels but the big you know the big money typically comes at federal provincial do you feel that it's effective that it is efficient to the point around you know entrepreneurs feeling that that strain around reporting and meeting milestones and whatnot and losing a bit of creativity if, if that point is true at all do you, do you feel like in general it's effective 100 percent. like once you get off of that um 
track we're talking on where you're focusing on product market fit and you know uh you're trying to stay alive you know last time adam and i talked i said as an entrepreneur you have one job stay alive like you have to live to tomorrow jeff bezos still his whole focus is stay alive for one more day and so stay alive for one more day means fill out a 22 page grant you freaking do it like stay alive and but when you're in stay alive mode that's not product fit mode or product market fit mode. So, so I will never discourage that process, but you're now off main street. You're down a back alley. You're, you're distracted. You lack focus, but quite frankly, if you don't have product market fit and you need to do more R and D, there's no point being on main street anyway, because if you come to us for cap capital, we're not going to write the check. Like, cause you don't, you're not on a good path. So take the time, go back onto that back alley, fill out the 28 pages and, and take some R and D time to, to get yourself back commercial. If I was, you know, I've had this conversation with um, some members of a couple government departments and some politicians. I, I won't name them. I wouldn't be fair to call them out, but I've actually said the way they could become more efficient is what if 50% of their grants kind of like what ACOA is doing right now, ACOA, though, leaves it for the entrepreneur to find the 50%. So they'll give you 250, but you got to find 250 on your own. What if you're not allowed to get any money unless, you know, an angel group, an angel, a VC was actually coming in with 25%, 30% of the money, and then you got a 70% grant? That would focus everybody's energy pretty quickly. And I, I think we also have to be careful, Adam, about the difference between basic research which we do in our universities where we really create amazing Canadian innovation and applied research, which is applied research that's coming out of basic and heading to commercial. So we almost have to have a three tier system, which is basic to hardcore, you know, SDTC spend 10 to 15 million on figuring out what we can do in something new and innovative applied where it's, you know, 75% government and 30% private sector. And then, you know, some kind of matching IRAP or shred or something like that. I think the private sector could, could help because if they stepped in, everybody becomes more efficient. So just to wrap on the, on the conversation in general around the, you know, your blog post and everything that we've been chatting about for the last 40 minutes is your conclusion really is Canada is a B plus ecosystem as is 97% of the world. You know, there are exceptions here and there. And, and indeed, you know, I think a lot of the United States is, I think to the point you made there in, in your article as well, that a lot of the United States is a B plus ecosystem. And there are just, there's these select jurisdiction, which are the ones that are the real, the unicorn jurisdiction. So, you know, everyone in tech is going big globally, you know, software developers are in demand that you've never seen before. It's, in, it's, just, it's just bananas. Is there a path for Canada to maybe get an edge and, and be in the A minus territory, if you get what I'm saying, to kind of move up and, and be a be a player that sits above the others. We're so busy focused on our startup space. We haven't focused on our exit space. You know, we've seen companies fight through it, right? Uh, locally, you know, we've got Solium, we've got Benevity. Uh, RS just became was a half billion dollar exit a couple of weeks ago. But let's be honest about how long it took them to get there. And, you know, I, I met the jobber guys. In fact, they were about to come through Valhalla and they raised their round of 
four days before and they canceled their opportunity. Uh, Jack Newton was in my first base camp in Silicon Valley in 2007 at Clio. It's 2021. Jack's doing great stuff. He's a, he's got a unicorn valuation, but as at, on the investor side, am I happy about the unicorn valuation, you know, 14 years later, 15 years later, or would I prefer to get out at series B seven years after the fact? I, I don't have an answer for you. I, I like to say there's no such thing as a good business decision. It's hemlock or arsenic. So you pick your poison, right? And then when we've been a minus, you know, my tell nor tell. RIM, BlackBerry, right? We look at our history of growing from a tiny seed to being a multinational player. And how are we doing? That's not a shot. That's that's like, I feel there's a really good thing about embracing who we are. And then when the breakouts happen, the Shopify's, the Slack's, the, uh, you know, like you think about, in, you know, Finland where you get Spotify and, and, and you know, you go through other countries that are B plus ecosystems and how big the breakouts are and what they spawn. And we used to call them anchor tenants in a VC fund or, you know, like or even in an ecosystem like Benevity's become an eco, uh, anchor tenant in the Alberta ecosystem. Jobbers an anchor tenant. They, they create jobs for people. They can spin between companies. They can create more innovations off that. And then, by the way, we don't spend enough time giving love to the people who got us here. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Z's and the millennials are about to bite my head off. But you know what? We got a lot of engineers on the street because uh, Shell, you know, the Encanas, uh, the Pan-Canadians, like go through our traditional industries and what, what it has actually accomplished for us in the power space. You know, Quebec Hydro or Power One. We have some amazing anchor big companies. They're just not in tech. And the reality is if we build a billion-dollar tech company, Morgan Stanley's coming around to buy them or IBM's picking it up for parts. So it sounds bitter, but, you know, it's just it's what it is. I, I don't see how we get what's been built in Silicon Valley over 50, 60 years to populate. You you have to have the per, you know, the opposite of a perfect storm. You have to have the, like four anchor tenants grow up in the same city at the same time, which creates – angels that make a return vcs that can go back and get more lp money because look how smart they are thousands of software engineers who could who could uh, pop between the four companies the car dealerships making ridiculous amounts of money and another thousand people that say screw you to the big four companies that actually got the this amazing ecosystem built i'm going to go start my own like it's just it's amazing to me how much time we focus on trying to make that the reality. And, and if we actually sat back and thought about what that reality looks like and how we get there, you know, don't, don't quit dreaming. That's, I mean, that's why we're all in tech and startups is we love big dreams, but I think that one's a bridge too far. Yeah. So maybe as a whole a country as a whole, from a tech perspective, we're suffering from imposter syndrome a little bit, but Hey, guess what? As, as you already know, uh, my message today is guess what? 97% of the world has, Right. Like if you go into economic development in Dayton, Ohio, what's your what's your grand plan? You know, tech is tech has the best paying jobs. We're going to become a tech center. We're going to be, uh, you know, Ohio Valley. You know, everyone's got Silicon Valley North or Silicon Valley. This or the, the dream of every economic development officer is to emulate something that grew up in an like 
you know, it's, it's, it's like a big bang theory in a way. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you bringing some perspective to this. And, and for those who, or I guess people who are feeling that we, we can be that and not realizing all that, all that went into making it. And it's not, not to say that we can't succeed. Right. But, uh, what, what, what they have there is something special. So. Yeah. Can I make one comment though? I mean, yeah. Think about how close Calgary is right now. Like you have the Benevity exit, you have Solium, you have RS, you have right now anchor, anchor tenants, you have venture capital money that the Alberta government's made available. I wish they'd actually use some of it to build local VCs as opposed to populate it with Valley VCs. You have a mentor system. You like, we have the pieces in Calgary right now as an Edmontonian who's now in Calgary, that's disappointing, right? I'll never be a Flames fan. I'm always an Oilers fan. Like, you know, Edmonton, I said this last time, step up. Unfortunately, you know, it's 14 months later and we still need to see more, right? So there are components that says we're close. So I don't want to just be the complete naysayer because I actually think you look at Vancouver, you look at Toronto, you look at Calgary, there's pieces there. And we have some really, really strong up-and-coming companies in Calgary. You know, the, the fintech companies we've got, um, you know, what Cement's doing and, uh, you know, a few others. Like, I mean, give those companies maybe another couple of years and holy moly, right? So let's let's watch. Let's watch. Cool. Well, Randy, thanks so much. Your input on all that is really interesting. And, and again, for people who haven't read those two blog posts, I really encourage you to go back and read it. It's got a lot to chew on, a lot to think about. But at the end of the day, uh you know, I think we're just going to keep our head down here at Calgary and Alberta and, and hopefully good things will come. So um, one one other big piece that I wanted to quickly mention before we wrap it, Randy, is your uh, your recent success in the uh, Peterborough United you know, over in the UK, the the soccer team. And they, they for those who don't know how things work over there, the ranking system works in a way such that if you win, you move up into eventually the top level, which is the premiership. And I believe you guys moved from third to second tier, if I'm not mistaken. And that's a significant milestone. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, that's uh, my, myself and my partner, Jason Neal, we were over for the uh, final game and, you know, not, not to go too deep into it, but we were three nil down in the 65th minute. That's like, it's like the flames being down four nothing going into the third. And, uh, and we came back and we got the tie on a penalty shot, which was absolutely dodgy. Like you would think the Italian, you know, the Italian referees leaving with a bag of cash at the end. It was so bad. And uh, so we scored in the 95th minute on a penalty shot. And we only needed one point to secure our going up to the second division. And, you know, I appreciate you saying it because, Adam, I, I was joking that I feel like a Canadian kid with jeans and a T-shirt going to a English black tie affair and I'm just trying to dodge the security guards until they find me and kick me out. Cause I like that. It's that biggest step from the third division to the second that we're playing teams. that are going to have 40,000 fans and 5,000 traveling fans. And we'll be on sky sports every weekend. And we have a 15,000 seat stadium that barely gets 8,000 out that was built in 1930. So, uh, so we're just going to, we're going to fake it till we make it. But uh, it was a huge, huge honor so that was awesome of you to bring it up yeah for sure so does that mean we're going to be doing our, our podcast transatlantic next year all the time or what's what's your plan hey listen i said if anybody's over in the uk you should take me up on this i'd love to host you either away or home and i have access to a lot of uk football so if you care about football reach out uh but yeah that would be great we could i don't know what your uh, budget is adam but we'll do the transatlantic uh, live from london 
<laughs> okay, sounds good. Cool, Randy. Anything else you want to mention before we wrap it up? And no, I, you know what? I think the last thing is just how how awesome it is as we come out of what we've gone through for the last year and a half. I know how hard it is for people. You know, I've seen some real hard mental health cases while you're trying to do a startup, not sure if you're going to be able to open or close next week. You know, that was a real, that was a real trying time for all of us. I'm just loving going out on LinkedIn across Western Canada and everyone's hiring, hiring this and hiring that we, you know, in Valhalla, we're hiring four people in OKR. We're hiring four people. You know, I see all the software companies, like it's just so exciting right now to be part of this ecosystem and see where we're all going to come out of this and how we're going to be, you know, my last note, I just think we're all going to be okay. And I'm sure looking forward to seeing you all face to face over a pint uh, at some point. I think the Calgary stampede might be a little brave, but uh, Adam, you and I deserve a pint sometime in our near future. Yeah. Cool. Thanks Randy. I appreciate it. Thanks for, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Really appreciated this. If you haven't already, Visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode is brought to you by SAIT's School for Advanced Digital Technology, an innovation hub disguised as a post-secondary institution where creators, educators, and learners, like you, are coming together to transform tomorrow. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>